Read along with me, if you would, please, starting in verse 26. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him, took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, this is your time. You have ordained it. You've set it apart now. And I know you have work to do in each of us. So do so, please. Minister profoundly. Speak profoundly. Let our hearts be open and available. Let our lives be reachable. God, you know what you want to say to us, so let us hear it, I pray. I commit this to you. I pray you would anoint me with your Holy Spirit. Immerse me that you would be seen. Reveal your love, your call. And in clarity today, Lord, speak, overcome every barrier. Be that of any form of sin or pride. Or be that of any form of culture or language. Overcome every barrier. And speak a word to each of us. That we would hear you today. And know you and love you more. So I commit this time to you and I pray you would do your work, please. Have your way. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. We've just left the six trials of Jesus. Three of them from a religious side Annas, and then the small council, and then ultimately the Sanhedrin. And then the three trials that are before the secular courts, Pilate, and then Herod, and then Pilate again. In those particular trials, we could actually look and say, this is so unfair. And it really is. Completely and absolutely innocent, Jesus is. The religious leaders looking for lies, anything with a preconceived notion of figuring out how in the world they can get him condemned. And I look at this and I think, this is so unfair. And then we see at the end of it the showdown, the showdown between him, that is Jesus, our Savior, and a rebel, a thief, a murderer named Barabbas. He is completely guilty. He's as guilty as anyone would be, especially in the eyes of Rome. Because in the eyes of Rome, he was a threat to the empire. He was a challenge to the kingdom. And he was an enemy of the king. He was not just a murderer, though that would be more than enough, or a thief. But he was a, re- he was a rebel. He, was an o- he had openly declared war on the kingdom of Rome. Nobody would be a more prime example to crucify for others. The Romans knew that in crucifying someone, they were making him a public example so that everyone would know, if you mess with Rome, this is what you get. The average time that a person lived 
on the cross was between 8 and 11 days. Because of all of the natural instincts and, if you will, you know, sort of unconscious responses that your body does, breathing is actually the greatest. Because your body knows, God created you this way, that air is the one thing you need quicker than anything else. Well, with that, in a physical sense. Now, knowing that, we have this standpoint where this perfectly and absolutely guilty man goes completely free. Why a completely innocent man goes completely guilty before the people, even though everyone declares his innocence. And we say, this isn't fair. When I think of all the times in my life where I've said this isn't fair. Because within each of us is a sense of justice. God has put it that within us. The desire to see accounts paid. It was such a profound aspect during the writing, by the way, of the Merchant of Venice, or I should say that of Othello. When Iago, the bad man, here's a spoiler alert, seems to get away at the end, that when performing it in the Wild West, cowboys would jump up and actually shoot the guy who played Iago because they didn't think it was right that the man should be able to get away with it, even though it was just a play. There is this sense of justice. But let me just say this. Grace isn't fair. And grace will never be fair. And I realize in this that a totally guilty rebel goes free at Jesus' expense. And until I see myself, that Barabbas, it will just seem unfair in a negative way. But Jesus voluntarily steps in. He steps in under his own volition to redeem the honor of a fallen man like me or like you. And he takes that shame and that guilt and he places it upon himself. So that Barabbas, the name, son of the father is what it means. That I could go free and you could go free. Free Barabbas. But somebody must pay. And Jesus does. So the following that we see here in essence, if you will, is the sum of the bill. The misjustice, the torture, the abuse. Well, it's really all for me. And in all of Scripture, this is the most detailed 24 hours of Jesus' life. From the Passover, to the prayer, to the arrest, to the six trials, to the suffering, to the hematidrosis in the garden, the litany of gratuitous violence, the explicit amount of blow-by-blow tortures of Jesus are all placed here. And i just got to be honest to tell you, we've cleaned it up. I mean, if we really were to see the cross for all that it was, we would be so sick to our stomach, none of us would be able to continue. I certainly wouldn't be able to continue to walk through it. But we even make it now our, our slogans, Jesus died for you, it's true. But in that, it's, we actually quicken up what it makes us uncomfortable because Jesus didn't just die for you. Jesus was tortured for you and for me. And that's the harder part to grasp. Because then maybe for some of you, and I actually have, maybe this is a luxury, I have a fairly good appraisal of how horrible of a person I was. Actually, to be honest, I was just so horrible that simple appraisals enough that I can look back and I can see how some of these things are justifiable or all of the sufferings of Jesus are justifiable for a person like me in the life I've lived. But maybe for some of you, you maybe your life wasn't that. Maybe your life wasn't one of those where 
it was sort of a, you know, I was genuinely a decent person, and then I came to Christ, and now I'm kind of a, a more of a decent person. And you kind of look and you think, oh, this just seems like so over the top. But I want you to realize when Jesus paid for the sins of all men, he paid for the sins of all men. And when he said, it is finished, it was finished. When Jesus was finished, it was finished. Back to the Wild West for a moment. There was a man known as the Branding Bandit. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. I don't know why you would have. But he was known, by the way, for kidnapping people, normally rich heiresses. And he would take, he would, he would take them and he would steal their money, but he would kidnap them first, hold them for ransom for a day. No one would get them. Then he would brand them. Now, branding, if you're familiar, is sort of a piece of metal stuck in the fire with your insignia on it, your slogan, your logo. And then he would stick it on their skin so they'd have this permanent mark of that they had been branded by the branding bandit. And when he was finally caught, the question was, how do we put this guy to death? Because they didn't want to hang him. They wanted him to die because he had kidnapped people and in one case really left someone severely disfigured. So what did they do? They actually branded him to death. They continued to take these hot pieces of metal stick them in the fire and continue to put them on his skin and other parts until ultimately the man would bleed to death. It was a really crazy thing. And the whole point of it was is that the people who had actually suffered saw that as justifiable because that's what he had done to them. Now as we go through some of these sufferings, and, and let's be honest, this could make us horribly uncomfortable. What we're looking at is the suffering of a human being, God in the flesh, who takes these things unnecessarily from this, in regards to the fact that we really rightly deserve them. Though clearly in this, taking them all upon us, uh, upon him, we look at these things and we slow down for a second and we kind of go, okay, so he was beat up and he was scourged and that's it. But, but I look at that and I realize that each one of these things is so carefully detailed. He doesn't go, you know, God doesn't go gratuitously into what Jesus experienced with every stripe. We could be thankful for that. But he does make really careful note that Jesus experienced these specific sufferings. And I think about this and I start to realize, well, cross, I get the cross thing. Jesus died for me on the cross to pay for all my sins. But you need to realize that the sufferings of Christ were payment. All of these things were payment. So then I get into this and I realize I can go and I spent seven years interviewing all kinds of doctors to get medical perspective on all the things that Jesus experienced from the hemohydrosis, hematidrosis that he would experience in the garden where he sweats like drops of blood, making his, making his skin sort of like paper mache, where it's six times thinner and more fragile and frail than it would be to a normal person, which then only amplifies everything he experiences after that six times. And I can go through that and we can get our heads full of all of this medical information and walk out of here feeling much smarter, but really not attaching any of it. And then I realize, what does Scripture say about these things? Because it's one thing to know that he was beaten in such a way. It's another thing to realize why such a thing would be appropriate. And that's my intent here. So though it is certainly uncomfortable to go through these things to a slower degree, I also just wanted you to know that it could be terribly encouraging. Because on the other side of that, Maybe there's a sin that still stares you in the face. Maybe it is something in the past, but you're still carrying it with you. And you kind of carry it like a tattoo or maybe like a brand. Like somehow on your flesh is marked this permanent scar from a sin you've done or it's been done to you. I'm here to let you know Jesus paid for it. And I'm here to encourage you and me today to recognize that when I look at this, I'm looking at God detailing the receipt. 
Have you ever gotten a bill and it looked like too much and so you had to kind of go through it all just to make sure that they really weren't charging you for a car when you were actually just going to buy bread? You know, you've got a small bag of groceries and you've kind of come out and there's like, well, okay, and you know, you try not to be uncool about it and somewhere, I don't know how you would do it, but I kind of, you know, try to find some place and pull out my phone and put the receipt in front of my phone and I'm just there kind of analyzing, okay, yeah, I guess that's everything. Well, what Jesus is giving us here is a detailed account of the bill for you and for me. Verse 26 again says he released Barabbas to him. He released the son of the father, this person who was completely in rebellion to the king like we have been with Jesus. The Bible tells us that when we were enemies in our heart and minds to God, Jesus died for us. That we were walking around in the lusts of our own flesh and mind and were by nature children of wrath. That's pretty heavy. We were governed or steered or influenced by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience. What we're going to find is there are three basic movements in this. The first movement is the scourging, the second is the shaming, and the third then is the striking. So this is where it starts. It says in verse 26, they released Barabbas to him. And when they had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. All of the stuff that happens in between, then of course is en route to the cross. So the first thing we have is scourging. Scourging was, in the simplest sense, we might say it would be like whipping, but it's so much more than that. Scourging was more than just taking leather strips from a distance, spinning them, cracking them. I don't know if any of you have ever had that kind of thing that guys do with towels. That's always sort of nasty. I don't know how, you know, which just tells us we're fallen creatures because nobody in their right mind with kindness in their heart develops that kind of idea. But they would take these things that were roughly between three and four meters long, these leather strips, and they would put within them pieces of bone and metal. They would spin them around them like a helicopter and then fling them. But they would strip the person naked first. And as they did so, they would take them to something roughly the size of a telephone pole and wrap them either that way or like you would over a horse trough. So that as much body would be exposed. And it was done publicly because people actually came to see it. As the, uh, as the whip would kind of come in, it would, of course, these pieces would lodge into the flesh of the human back and neck. And then, of course, he would pull to pull out pieces. The purpose of this initially was to elicit confession. The idea was, is if you confessed more things that you had done against the state of Rome, well, then ultimately, they would take it easy on you. They would whip you lighter. So I get that. But for somebody who had already had a meltdown in the garden, this would have been infinitely greater. And then I start looking at what scourging looks like in Scripture. Do you know that scourging, interestingly enough, is introduced in Leviticus? Not that type where you would be ripping skin off. It would be done with leather, leather thongs. But in such a case, interestingly enough, the first time it's mentioned is in Leviticus 19, verse 20, in regards to people who had been sexually loose. People who had mistreated men, by the way, who had mistreated a woman. They had, if you will, they had infringed upon her honor, for which then they were scourged. In Joshua 23, verse 12, God speaks when he talks about driving out the nations to the promised land. And when he did, he told them that if you actually didn't drive these things out of your life and you let the old world stay, 
Don't be like scourges to you. And we get this kind of idea here that God knows we really want to play around with the world. It is going to be like getting whipped, only spiritually. It tells us that it will be scourges in your sides and thorns in your eyes. I don't know about you, but that does sound, that, there's nothing about that I would volunteer for. And I get the idea that he starts to say, you loving the world is like scourging. In Proverbs 26.31, it tells us that the whip is for the horse, but the bridle is for the donkey and the rod for the fool's back. And, and I get the idea. The whip for the horse was the idea that you had an animal that had a, you had a plan for that was good, but it didn't want to go. It just would not go. And it all boils down to Proverbs 20, verse 30, when it says, Blows that, uh, that hurt cleanse away evil as do stripes the inner depths of the heart. And I put all of these things together and this is what you get. You've got this issue that's on the inside. This issue of what is actually where other people can't see but God. And we tend not to think of that because we don't want God to see that either because we don't even want to see it. Those things that we entertain in our heart that we've kind of figured out how to put enough emotional makeup on, how to kind of cover up with our behavior, so that people really don't see. And according to the things that seem to move into it, it's really this. It's sexual impurity, loving the world, and having no real interest in doing what God told us to do. Going where God told us to go. Because that is rebellion to the king now, isn't it? When the king says go, and you say, no, I won't. Take that step of faith. Be bold about me. Let them know who I am. And we're busy trying to, in essence, protect ourselves so much. That's such a thing, by the way. And I get the idea then of scourging. Because what scourging, is, in essence, is doing is it's actually tearing underneath the skin to punish the crimes underneath. The impurity, the infidelity, the irreverence. And the idea of actually getting underneath this skin was the idea that somewhere underneath that skin there were hidden crimes that no one really knew about but you. And that's why, of course, these things were to elicit confession. And you can take that own look for yourself, but I look at this scourging and I realize this makes perfect sense to me. Because it's one thing to think that God actually punished and took the punishment for the things that you've done, that I've done. But it's another thing to actually realize that God took the punishment for the things I thought or felt or I might even say was too coward to actually do but wanted to. The things inside my head that I entertained and played out over and over again. The fantasies of the world or even just the angers and the bitterness that easily get entertained when somebody hurts you. But we start this whole thing with this. When we say Jesus paid it all, that's the whole point of this. I look at this and I realize Jesus didn't just die on the cross, though that would have been enough because that's the death penalty and the most horrible of them. But Jesus took the whipping, the scourging. And I really believe it's so that you would know and that I would know that even the filthiest and darkest and most remote parts of our heart the parts, to be honest, that none of us would really want to see. Are there parts, there are for me, that God would be like, can I show you what this really looks like? I'd be like, no, thank you. 
please, just could you just remove it? It is amazing the things that we think don't get seen. But inevitably, the Bible makes clear, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. And whatever is planted in your heart, ultimately, in one way or another, will manifest. Even if it doesn't manifest the way you think it will. And I'm here to let you know, in this scourging, Jesus paid for the crimes of our heart. Every filthy thing, every moment, that second glance at whatever the thing was that wasn't yours. What it tells us what happens beyond that. Verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium, gathered the whole garrison around him, they stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, and when they twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they spat on him. Then they took the reed, struck him on the head, and when they had mocked him. Well, stop there. What we have in this particular portion in our second motion is the shaming. Now, I'm familiar with the fact that in a Western culture, this is different. Now, I'm aware, just looking around, that not all of you are from a Western culture. In a Western culture, the emphasis is on the individual. And that can be a horribly lonely thing. It's intended to be, by the way. That's, I'm sure, the way the enemy works. But in being that, what happens is, is that the focus then is on guilt. You're guilty. Because the focus is on you. And because if it's of you, then you're wrong, and therefore you have to deal with it. But in an Eastern culture, we actually think more from a cultural perspective of a community whether that be the family or whether that be the neighborhood, one way or another, you think more corporately. And because of that, guilt isn't as much the issue as another thing, and that is shame. To shame a family, to dishonor a family is another story altogether. And from an Eastern perspective, and again, I'm speaking in broad generalizations, I recognize that, it is a greater crime to actually shame your family or your community or your, your town than it would be just to be simply guilty of something. Interesting, because God makes really clear that Jesus died to pay for our, and he makes clear in Hebrews, guilt and shame. It doesn't matter where you're from. Jesus is still the bill payer. So then we have this particular perspective and you realize Jesus is being publicly shamed. And he's being publicly shamed in ways that we actually get. It tells us, by the way, notice again, that the first thing they do is they take him to the garrison. The whole garrison's gathered around them in the praetorium, I'm sorry. And as they do that, the, the, they strip him. Now, it's important, it tells us that there's this stripping, there's putting a scarlet robe on him, there's putting a reed in his hand, there's a crown of thorns put on his head, things that we're familiar with. They're iconic, of course. But I'd like to kind of give you a little bit more of an understanding, perhaps for a moment, on how that actually plays out culturally for it. So we have a few pictures that kind of help. Uh, the first of those pictures, by the way, I wanted to... Oh, well done. This is a bird's-eye view of the model of the temple. That would have been 2,000 years ago, Herod's temple. It was roughly 1.2 million square feet from courtyard wall to courtyard wall. Now, since this is the east, and that is important, so you go west as you enter in from the east. And that is important. 
It was always that way. Even back with the tabernacle that was actually even designed, if you will, as God speaks of it in Exodus chapter 25, when he says, make them a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. The entrance always had to be, so here's a simple thing to remember, it always had to be from the east. Now, you could think that's arbitrary, except for the fact that if you go back to Genesis, you recognize that when Adam and Eve were removed from the garden, they were cast out east of Eden. Eden, for what it's worth, Heden means pleasure in Hebrew to this day. We use the word hedonistic. It comes from it. Well, understand what would happen then if you were coming from the east, which, by the way, here would be then the Mount of Olives, uh, and then, which, of course, is where, like, for instance, Lazarus' house would be, Bethphage and Bethany are all up here. And you would come from the east and you would be heading west into the area where there is this place where you would said that God dwelt. You would be, in essence, like God inviting you back to Eden. That was the idea. So if this is east, then this makes it the northwest corner. Does that make sense? If you kind of do the kind of geography on that, if you can think spatially. This northeast corner originally was a little building right here. And that little building was actually originally the wardrobe for the Kohen Gadot, the high priest. It was where he kept his garments. But ultimately, in Roman, as the Romans rebuilt this, ultimately this becomes then a fortress called the Antonio Fortress. That Antonio Fortress was where all the Roman troops would be. And during big feasts, like for instance, Passover and Pentecost, it's where the Roman leaders would be, for instance. That's why Jesus in one night can go from Pilate to Herod to Pilate again, because they would all be in the Antonio Fortress. It'd be the one place that would be safest for him because they'd be surrounded by, by garrisons of, of, of soldiers. Now, in the middle of that is a courtyard, and you can probably see that there. By the way, this is also, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, where Paul would stand up and give his address before the people, and they go crazy and want to kill him. Now, in this area here is the praetorium. That is the courtyard area. That courtyard area still exists today. Though the temple court proper, this has been torn down, and of course, that's where the shrine of Omar yeah, it looks like the Epcot Center. And then the thing over here, which is the uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque, that's where all of that is. Well, it's important to note that this today is a convent, and that convent's called the Convent of the Sisters of Mercy. And if you walk there, and you can go and still visit, when you go there, they still have those pavement stones from the time of Jesus, 2,000 years ago, in the area of the Praetorium. For instance, this is one of those stones. This is an actual pavement stone still there from 2,000 years ago. Now, this just may look like, if you will, like you know, Hugo's been there and he sort of graffitied back in his day with a chisel, but this is a very specific thing. So go ahead and go to the next one, if you will. It's more clear. Thank you. This is called the King's Game. The King's Game was a dice game that was played for condemned soldiers. And in essence, it was like Wheel of Torture. The idea of it was, is you kind of roll dice, and, and it's still debatable on kind of ultimately how it was played in its minutiae, but basically you had different things for which you could then receive, different punishments. So you took a guy out there that everybody seemed to really need to be taught a lesson, and then you kind of rolled the dice, and basically you, you could get, get the idea that he was going to be sort of whipped in some manner, because that's kind of the idea of a scorpion, although he's got an awful lot of legs. Uh, and there are centipedes there too, by the way, and you don't want to hug those. They're not nice either. Or you have this idea here of certain kinds of bludgeoning and beating that you can have. But ultimately you have this thing, the bastion, but where it is the idea of king for a day. And the idea of it is, is like if you won the grand prize, now understand winning the grand prize of torture would really not be the, your goal. 
This would be the place where you want to get as little as possible. Well, getting the grand prize would be that you would be treated like, in essence, the enemy dignitary, the king against Caesar, for which then you dress them up like a king and then you beat him like an enemy king. You beat him worse than you would anyone else. And the only person who has the capability of completely controlling the outcome of any of these things is God in the flesh there and chooses the grand prize. What a phenomenal thought. But I want you to realize why Jesus would do that. The reason why Jesus would do that is because he doesn't want you ever, ever, ever to think for one moment that there's something Jesus might have only partially paid for. For a moment that somehow something you've done or thought or felt or intended sort of maybe just slipped by on a technicality. Jesus took it to the extreme to pay. You know, there's only two ways to become a family member. Now, we could, we could use actually three if you want to use in their marriage. So you can marry in as a gal and become a part of another person's family in the Middle East. Or you could be born into the family. Or you can be adopted into a family. Those are the only three ways basically somebody basically becomes a member of a family. Don't you find it interesting that God uses all three of those metaphors about what happens to us when we receive Jesus? That we become betrothed to Jesus, so we are a member of the family. That we are born again, so we were born into the family. And we are adopted as the spirit of adoption speaks through us by which we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. So you need, we need to recognize that there is no part that you could say, well, maybe not that. It is if God took, took care of every direction Make sure that every one of those things were done. If you will, God is the master of overkill when it comes to making sure that there's no other way than complete and absolute surety that this is done. You couldn't be more of a family than having all three requirements met. So in this situation, Jesus takes every one of these horrible tortures of a king for a day. And notice back in our text now how that looks. The first thing is they strip him. It tells us that as they lead him to the praetorium, the whole, if you will, crew of soldiers are surrounding him. And in verse 28 it says, they strip him. Now, you're probably aware of this. Although on our Western culture, to be honest, there is a brazen disregard for this. But in most places still in the world, stripping someone naked is actually an act of shaming them. As a matter of fact, that's what God tells us in Micah 111. But even more specifically in Nahum 3.5, when he speaks about putting skirts over people's faces and showing the nations their nakedness and then in parallel says the kingdoms your shame. Why do you shame someone? You shame someone who has shamed others. That's the point. In your own self-elevation, they are bringing you down to size. Now, we'll remind you, Jesus has already been whipped. His back has found, if you will, comfort to some degree as it starts, the blood starts to cauterize on the clothes he is wearing. And they rip those clothes off of him. And then they put a robe on him. Now, I find it interesting as they put a robe on him, and that makes sense to me, that robe wasn't his, that was Caesar's. It was some other king's. 
that wasn't rightfully His, although all the kingdoms belong to the Lord. And I realize how many times in my own life have I ever grabbed a robe that wasn't mine, taken the credit for something that wasn't rightly mine, elevated myself to a place of spotlight and eminence. I had no place in doing that, especially when it comes to serving the Lord. Like any credit could possibly be mine. And here is Jesus bearing the robe. The robe of shame. The robe of another man's credit. And it makes sense to me why he would do so. And I remind you, at any given moment, Jesus could have pulled it all back and just blasted every one of these guys. But he didn't. Because if he did, we would sit here today with no hope. Because Jesus did this, I could say it's all been washed away. Every foolish, vain glory I've ever embraced washed away. Because he made this choice. But not only did they put a scarlet robe on him, verse 29, they twisted a crown of thorns. Now I have the kind of, I have the plant that grows right on the Mount of Olives there, and I would bring it in, but it's really hard to get uh, through things because the thorns on it are basically almost exactly like large toothpicks. There's pointy and a sharp, and basically the thorns that grow there. I mean, when we think of a crown of thorns, we tend to think of more something like a rose bush. They're still painful, no doubt, and they're really unpleasant. We get that. Or bramble bushes, because we get an awful lot of those here. But the actual branches that grow, or the thorns that grow in that area to this day, are actually branches in their adolescence. They grow out and they're sharp and they're pointy and they're about that long and they're solid and strong. And those of you who ever um, want to come to the study that we do, the overview study, ask me, remind me, and I'll show them because they're in my office. But the idea of putting this crown of thorns on, and this to me makes perfect sense. Because that takes me all the way back to Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve have actually chosen themselves over God, that's the whole point of the fall, that they chose themselves over God, that in doing so, God doesn't say, here's your punishment, but rather, this is what you've earned by doing so. The same way that, if you will, you jump in front of a bus, and even if you make it out alive, God did not punish you, punish you by breaking your leg. You did. It is amazing how many people are sexually immoral, play around with all of that, and then they wonder if they get some form of disease and they think God did that. It's like you've been playing roulette for a long time here and sooner or later the chips are going to get cashed in. Well, please understand in this. When God does, He speaks about it in regards to both the man and the woman. He holds the man accountable because he's supposed to lead in this, in this expedition and instead he wasn't. He was acquiescing. And in that then, he says to the man that though you're going to put your hands to the soil and it will be work, it will produce thorns. The very symbol of his fall and the way that the land has actually suffered from man's fall. I mean, don't think that anything you can ever do happens in a vacuum. The sin that he experienced, understand, affected the entire world around us. We know that the book of Romans tells us that creation itself groans for redemption. And our own bodies speak of that. But he says, you're going to set your hands to the soil. It is going to be hard work, 
but it is going to produce thorns. He goes, and here's the worst part. You can't live off of those. So you're going to have to work beyond the thorns just to get some place to live. Because now you're in a fallen world, man. Then he speaks to the woman. By the way, the first 316 in Scripture, and he speaks to her and says, you know, this whole baby thing, that's going to be rough. Now, that had to be weird for Eve because she hadn't had a child yet. And he's like, this is going to be long and it's going to be painful. Interesting, the two signs of the fall were thorns and a painful baby. You know what's interesting about that is that when Jesus, my King, comes to pay for that curse, He wears it upon Him like a crown. It makes perfect sense to me. He took the curse and He paid for it. The place where I said, me over God. And every one of us, if we're honest, are guilty of that. When you get the ladies, you're like, well, hey, well, hey, well, what, how come I'm still having painful babies? What's up with that? You know, what's interesting. Jesus isn't just coming once, is he? The scripture makes clear he is coming again. And you know what it tells us? That the second coming will be like a woman in travail. Do you realize God is wrapping this whole thing up when Jesus comes back and he's closing the deal on all of it? There's the beauty. Is he already knew all of that? But they took a crown of thorns and put it upon his head and my king took my curse. You know what's amazing? He took all of my shame and he openly and boldly, de- didn't declare it in, in, in its minutiae, but he openly declared his paying of it. And yet he, in all of my redemption, I'm more shy and quick to shrink away from being bold about his redemption than he is about bearing my shame. Doesn't that sound insane? Well, as that's the case, they twist the crown of thorns, they put it on his head, they read in his right hand as if it were his staff. And they bow the knee, mocking him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they spit on him. As my king goes back to the original sin, and by the way, understand that every sin, you can trace its way back sooner or later to me over God. That's it. That's how it all starts. The original sin is just me first, God, not you. And they spat on him. And I find it interesting because the whole idea of spitting, of course, all the way going back to Numbers 12 is about dishonor. In Deuteronomy 25, when a man will not take the duty of actually bringing forth a child in honor of his deceased brother, your brother's wife spits in your face. Job 20 speaks of it as disgrace. And yet Isaiah 50, verse 6, speaking about God's Messiah, the Mashiach Nagid, says, I gave my back to those who struck me, my cheek to those who plucked out my beard, And I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. He goes, I offered it. Not because he enjoyed it. So here's where it goes as we go to our last step in this. The first, the scourging for the hidden things of my heart. The shaming for my self-elevation. And then finally, the striking. They took that reed that was in his hand as they mocked him, they tore that robe off of him, which I remind you, his, his back had been completely torn up. Put his own clothes on him, led him away to be crucified, but first took that reed and struck him in the head. Now the reed that he would be carrying would be a lot like bamboo. 
And I don't know how familiar you are with bamboo, but bamboo, of course, one of the most amazing things about it is it's one of the few things you can almost watch grow. Some bamboo grows so quickly that it can grow even as much as a meter in the course of a day or two. It's unbelievable, in which case you probably, if you sat long enough, you probably could watch it grow. There are bamboo in the Middle East that grow that are actually about the size of your leg. To this, for, this, for this fact, I know that, for instance, Anne had been uh, in Istanbul. One of the things they do in Istanbul, by the way, is, is there's this particular law that says that if you're, until your house is finished, you don't have to pay property tax. So what most of the people do there is they build a two-story house. And as they build a two-story house, they only finish one story of it. And by doing that, they live in it. The house is never finished and they never pay property tax. That's their way around paying the taxes. Well, how do they make that house look like it's not completely finished? Well, that's simple. They use bamboo because these thick, sturdy bamboo that are really big and honking, well, these things actually hold up roofs. And there are places in Asia, for instance, and in the Far East, other places in the Far East, where you find that it still becomes the main building material for a lot of the huts and a lot of the houses that are there. But the particular reeds that are actually there that grow still much in the, in the Middle East are roughly about the size, to be honest, roughly about the size of a walking cane. And what they do is they take the end of it and they fray it, much like, if you will, like what they used to do in the 80s with hair. And as they, what happens at the end of it, it all looks like something from a David Bowie cover. And ultimately, when they would take that, and it becomes these little razors, if you're familiar, it become very, very sharp. And so when they would take this thing and strike you, it wasn't just hitting you in the head like with a billy club or with one of those tomfas that they built, the bobbies would use outside, but it's actually much like basically getting hit by a bunch of razors on the top of your head, and it starts to just lacerate your face. Now, Isaiah makes clear that Jesus was beaten so badly that you could not recognize him, not just recognize him as Jesus, it was hard to recognize him as a man. I had a really good friend named Randy. We both ran a dojo together much when I was about 18, 19, 17, 18. And uh, Randy was one of those guys, he was really gifted, he was super quick, a really, really thin. And uh, Randy, through a series of events, had found himself... Uh, the night before he was to be married, uh, drove off of a very curvy road and the tree and the car hit so hard that it wrapped itself around a tree and didn't even slide down. <clears throat> and when that happened, Randy, who was driving, actually went into uh, the steering wheel and it broke everything in the front of his face. But when I actually came to see him in the emergency room, in the A&E, he was unrecognizable. He looked like a big tomato. I mean, he was as red as a tomato. Everything was swollen. It was, he just did not look human. Not in his face. And I get this. And I realize in regards to the striking, that of a rod specifically. It tells us in Proverbs 14, verse 3, that the mouth of a fool is the rod of pride. And I get the idea here. They were physically striking somebody who was known for abusing much like the branding of the branding bandit, they were returning like man or eye for eye. Except Jesus wasn't guilty of any of that. I was. Now, I don't know how violent you are or how violent you've been. Perfectly, you're not violent now. But I know how I have been. And I know the person that I was. But it doesn't have to be just physical violence. Because I recognize Jesus taught me back in Matthew 6 
Matthew 5 and 6. That it's one thing to outwardly strike a person, it's another thing to be inwardly bitter. To have unforgiveness. To carry that anger in my heart, though, though I may never grab the reed and strike somebody on the outside. Oh, on the inside, on the other hand, I've rehearsed it so many times by now that it plays an infinite loop. And, you know, let's face it, the worst part is there's a part of us that feels it's justifiable because they've hurt us or wronged us or surprised us in such a way that we're still in shock and it's like a coping mechanism. The worst part is it gives us this sick sense of pleasure or comfort or release. You know, when we go, oh, yeah, and we feel like nobody's going to get hurt for it because after all, I'm only torturing them in my head. And meanwhile, that movie screen is playing in front of God 24-7 and I can't see God grabbing popcorn and going, oh, it's an action flick. This should be good. I can't see that. And I look at this and I realize the reason Jesus took this is because we are naturally bitter people. Unforgiving. And the worst part is the enemy loves to convince us that we have a right to be that way. Here's the, here's the worst part. People will give us reasons to make that choice. They will betray us. They'll be human. They'll be frail in their commitments. Their words will amount to little. Their actions will betray the very grandiose moments of splendor and the magnificats that they actually proclaim of themselves. And in the end of it all, all the bravado that they lay before you becomes an essence a bastion of nastiness that you look at like a cesspool and think this was supposed to be, you were supposed to be a human oasis to me and now what I'm seeing is the opposite. You're a toxin. And then we go, well, you deserve it. Man, you should get it. And since you don't seem to be getting it from what I can see, I will do it to you in my mind. But Jesus didn't do it in his mind. He did it here in front of us all, for us all to see. By a group of people that in any given moment, Jesus could have ripped. I mean, let's face it. He didn't even have to kill him. He could have just had all their arms fall off. Some guys grabbing the reed and wanting to swing, and then their arms fall off. The next guy grabs the reed, his arms fall off. How soon before guys start to realize that you know, they do the math? I mean, think about what Jesus could do. But if he had done that, the enemy would still be able to come at you and say, but what about that thing? What about what that person did to you? And how you've entertained, and somewhere you know the Holy Spirit saying, you've got to let this go. This is no longer, this is the only person this is hurting now is you and God. Because I start to realize that these are the things that torture God. These are the things that torture His Son because He openly took these things so that I don't have to carry them anymore. I don't have to hold on to these things and they don't have to be standing there taunting me like something that is permanently engraved to my face. It's like now God is saying, these are things to let go of now because I've paid for them all. So when we sing Jesus paid it all, we mean all. And so God goes, well, yeah, I know you got the concept of all, but you're still detailing these things and you're trying to let these things slip under the radar, but these are all part of the all. So the real question then is, well, what do we do? What is my response if Jesus paid it all? Well, the clarity of it is, is that because Jesus paid it all, I'm free. If Jesus paid it all, I don't owe anymore. 
As long as I accept his payment, John 8, 36, Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you're not kind of free. You are free indeed. In other words, bank on this. This is absolute fact here that you are set free. So stop torturing yourself. Stop beating yourself up with it. Let it go. And if I'm free, then I realize as God detailed these things, how does that apply to me? And I look and I realize that if Jesus then took the hidden things of my heart and was openly abused for him, well then now I can boldly go to the throne of grace and confidence and renounce the hidden things. Hebrews 4.16 says, I boldly go to the throne of grace now in confidence. In 2 Corinthians 4.2 it says, I renounce the hidden things of shame. I'm not walking around anymore in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending myself to every man's conscience in the sight of God. It's like, look at, there's no reason to hide anything in there. It's already been paid for. Why dirty up a room that God's cleaned? I'm free. And I renounce those things of shame. I renounce those things in my heart. But instead of that, I boldly go to the throne of grace. And if I'm free because Jesus took all of my shame of my self-exaltation, well, then I willingly lay myself down. Because I'm free anymore, I don't have to worry about it. Because I belong to the Father of heavenly lights in whom there's no shadow of turning, from whom all good gifts come. Well, then I no longer have to fear and live in this constant state of self-protection. And I can unshackle myself because God has opened my prison doors and because He's opened my prison doors, I can still choose to live there. But how foolish would that be when the door is open? And I say, well, this is what I'm most familiar with. God goes, yes, but it's the worst place for you to be now. So I willingly lay myself down and say, God, I am no longer going to exalt myself, but rather I'm going to put myself under your governance and I'm going to take up my cross and follow you like you told me to in Matthew 10 and 16. Oh God, let me follow you now. Because the whole point of all of this was that Adam said, me over you. And I openly say, me under you. And if Jesus not only took the, the, the whippings and the scourgings and my shame, but he also took my strikings, I have to stop looking at other people like they're competition or enemies. I have to stop looking at other people like they're a threat to me. But now I have to see them as my ministry. So I let go of bitterness, anger, and I leave behind my hurts because he paid not only for my sins, but he paid for theirs too. Philippians 2 says, if there's any consolation in Christ, any, any comfort and love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy will then fulfill, Paul would say, fulfill my joy in being like-minded, being of the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, and let nothing be done of selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, esteem others more than myself. And then not to look over after my own interests, but rather the interests of others. And then he tells me, let my mind be the one that was like in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be called equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and being found in the likeness of men. And as he's found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So if I really am free, I really am free. And if I really am free, I want to walk like it. 
if I really am free, then I can renounce those things and let God give me a new heart because there's nothing in there to hold on to. Not in the old one. And I can lay my life down before the Lord and say it's yours. I'm not going to exalt myself. I want to glorify you. And in doing that, then I look at you so differently. I look at you and say, how do I love you, invest in you, serve you? Hey, is there an opportunity or a possibility you could get weird and wonky? Sure, of course. But I can't live in that fear. I can't live in this place where I'm constantly trying to survive and be threatened by the potential of someone else's humanness when I recognize that I'm human too. And if Jesus paid it all, he paid it all for me and for you. So as a result of that then, the only thing left is to say is I'm a new creation and so are you. If you've accepted this bill-paying Christ who took all of your shame and all of your guilt in mind and bore it on the cross and bore it on the way to the cross, then 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells me, and it's true, that I'm a new creation as I'm in Him. The same way that He rose again, I live in that. So therefore, it's not any longer about any of those other things anymore. Jesus has cast my sins as far as east is from west. Psalm 103 makes that clear. He blotted out my transgression as if it never existed. And Isaiah 42 tells me that. Jeremiah 50 tells me I could be looking for it and I can't even find it. And this is what I want to pray now for each one of us. That God would deepen our appreciation for not just the cross, but the way to it where the installments were paid and ultimately vanquished on the cross. And beloved, may we walk out of here with a deeper appreciation for this God who paid for us. So I have to ask you as we close this in prayer, what about you? Have you accepted this gift? Are you trying to pay for it yourself? And I understand, because both cultures, by the way, give us that. It's an honorable thing to pay your debt. And it is, in essence, a way that makes us feel less guilty if we pay it. But is it really honorable to let someone who's already paid your bill, isn't it dishonoring them to try to pay it yourself afterwards? And isn't it foolish for a guilty man who has already had his crimes punished to try to, in essence, then take those crimes upon himself one more time to pay for them? Because that sounds to me a bit crazy. And as we go to prayer, I want you to know the Bible tells us if we're willing to confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. But that's the choice you've got to make. But if you have said yes to Jesus, could the reality of what's been said here really sink in? And we walk out of here different people. Would you pray with me? God, I want to thank you for what you've done in this time. I want to thank you for the richness of your word here. I want to thank you, Lord, because though we are so familiar with at least the concept that you were hurt and beat up, and then in getting beat up, that you made it to the cross and you died there and the bill was paid in essence, well, in completion, that we quickly, in essence, skip past these other things because they make us uncomfortable. And yet, Lord, I, I just, I see, at least with some greater clarity, 
that each one of these things had specific purpose so that when the enemy comes with his condemnation, I have a deaf ear to him because you really did pay it all. And as if he took each itemized point of the bill and paid each one of them. And I want to thank you. I want to thank you, Lord, not for just paying for the things that other people can see, but the things in my own heart. Those angry things. And I don't want to just blame it on me being unsaved. I I, I just... It all boils down to me putting myself over you in my own heart. Seeing other people as insignificant in comparison because of some hurt or pain or whatever or because somehow they would have been some kind of competition to me prior to knowing you. And Lord, playing out my concept of justice in my heart because somehow it brought me a sick sense of, of comfort but I know it was in no way a blessing to you. So I pray for every person here, and myself included, oh God, please, may we see that it isn't just that you cleaned out the depths of our heart, but that you ripped it out and replaced it with a new one. You took that heart of stone that had been so hardened by these things and replaced it with one that is soft. Thank you for doing that. And how you took the shame that is so rightfully mine. I've lived so much of my life, especially before knowing you, with the intent of just getting over everyone else, getting better than or whatever the case is for dominating. And somehow in all of that, God, I felt like there was a nobility designed in it. Instead of being the greatest servant you would call me to be. And Lord, we know that in seeking to exalt ourselves, people become steps. They become flagstone in our path. That is so opposite of your heart. So Lord, replace proud attitudes with humility. that doesn't think little of ourselves, but thinks instead of you, takes the spotlight and puts it upon you. And as you took, Lord, all of the abuse, the strikings, oh God, forgive us for our bitterness. You've taught us to pray, to forgive those who have sinned against us. Forgive our debtors, even as or forgive us our debts, even as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us of our sins, even as we forgive those who sin against us. And yet, God, what we really want is for you to forgive us of all of our sins, regardless. And yet, in that, we feel like somehow we have a right to entertain unforgiveness on our own hearts where someone has done something, and in some cases, probably rather horrible. But not compared to what you, what you endured as a result of paying for the the abuses of mankind as a whole, and for me individually. So God, free me from the anger 
the disappointment, the bitterness that I would be so quick to cling to or would be quick to cling to me. Where again, I'm putting myself above you in my heart. And Lord, with that, I just want to thank you. Jesus, I want to thank you for taking all of that upon yourself at your own volition so that our price could be paid. And here in this room and at the sound of this voice, are you sure? Have you you said yes to this gift? Or are you just somehow banking that you can kind of slip in under some technicality? Well, why do that when Jesus so openly, so brazenly took all of our shame and our guilt? But if today you want to be sure, you want to say yes to Jesus, I'd like to lead you in a prayer. And it simply says this, God, I'm a sinner, but I really do believe you paid for all my sin. At and on the way to the cross, you paid for it all. And when you died there, as Scripture promised, you paid for it all. And just like Scripture promised, after being buried on the third day, you rose again to offer me a new life. No longer under the tyranny of my own sin and guilt. No longer under the despotism of my own, under, under my own condemnation, but rather today you offer me a new life to be a new creation, free indeed. I recognize I don't do this just simply assuming you paid my bill, but also confessing you as Lord. I put myself under you where I belong and ask you to be the Lord of my life like you really want to be. So I give myself to you. Have me now. Make me yours. Jesus, in your name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to give a confident Amen. God, you've heard our amens tonight. You've heard our prayers. Now please, give us the joy of your salvation. May we walk out of here truly free indeed. Not just in practice and practicality, but Lord, in the reality of the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we live. Father, we lift this up to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.